0: Is our democracy in crisis under President Trump? David Frum argues yes in his new book, Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. What happens when you put 22 refugee children from around the world into a single Colorado classroom? Helen Thorpe will be here to discuss her new book, The Newcomers. Plus, we'll talk about what we and the wider world are reading. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. David Frum joins us now. His new book is called Trumpocracy, The Corruption of the American Republic. David, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Let's start with the title, Trumpocracy. What exactly do you mean?
1: I mean exactly what it says. The suffix comes from the word for power or rule in ancient Greek. And it tries to convey an idea that is more relevant than than ever in this January of 2018, which is that the focus on Donald Trump's personality is the wrong focus, Country in the world are full of aberrant, cranky old men. The whole American system of government is designed to screen them away from power. That system failed, and Trumpocracy ties answer why.
0: And so you describe the state of affairs as one of crisis.
1: Yes, I want to make clear the nature of this crisis, though. When Donald Trump was first elected, there were a lot of easy comparisons to the most spectacular episodes in history: Hitler, and and so on. Uh, it's not that. I mean, there are a lot of stops on the train line of BAD before you get to Hitler Station. The crisis here, it's, this is more like gum disease than a heart attack. It's a slow corrosion and rot that can poison the whole body if not treated. But there is not going to be one dramatic moment at which people who are today doing nothing can suddenly be heroes. You have to start going to work now.
0: All right. I want to talk about what you see as the particular threats. But would you characterize this book overall as a kind of how we got here, where we are now? What is it going to take to get us out of this? Or is it, is it all of the above?
1: All of the above, if that's not being too greedy. So I'm very much interested in the question of how we got here. Mm-hmm. This, and the story really starts, in my opinion, at the end of the Cold War. The modern presidency was built to wage the Cold War. That's why we have these surveillance powers, the National Security Council. is The president has the power to end organized human life on Earth at any time with 15 minutes notice. So we built this system around that role. But once the Cold War ended – a, a lot of the way we had played the game since 1945 became obsolete. We began playing politics more and more ruthlessly. And the parties began doing things that would never have been considered before. And I opened by describing in a chapter called Pre-Existing Conditions, this falling down the stairs mm-hmm. toward ever more extremist kinds of politics. Donald Trump steps into that. Then more broadly, where does this come from in the society? Because this is not just political players playing for no reason. Right. They are drawing from deepening divisions. In the society, and I talk about those. And not just the ones that that if you're familiar with the economic problems and even the health problems, dwindling life expectancy, but increasing hostility between ethnic groups, increasing separation between men and women. I then try to detail what Trump is doing, and then I offer a roadmap to making some progress.
0: So, I mean, in a weird way, the state that we're in right now, and sort of trying to explain it, it's like a... A version of that old Thomas Frank book. What's the matter with Kansas? How is it that people vote so contrary to their economic interests? Because, as you point out, Trump is in office, not exactly doing things that will help benefit, at least economically, the white working class that that sort of elected him to this position. I mean, do you do you see a parallel there?
1: I. I... No, Tom Frank, and we've argued in a friendly and respectful way over this over his thesis for years. I think every human being is the world's leading expert on what's good for that human being. Mm-hmm. and I don't think it's ever proper to step forward and say, no you are mistaken about mm-hmm. what your interests are because they may just value different components of their interest in different ways. Uh, a lot of people who got a tax cut from Donald Trump still oppose him. I think one of the one of the things that Trump offered to a lot of people he offered. You can put this in a really harsh way. I'm going to put it in a less harsh way. Kind of reassertion of -hmm. how America should look and who should be in charge. And a lot of people found that really satisfying.
0: Let's talk about the subtitle of your book, which also has a very particular word, corruption, the corruption Mm -hmm. of the American republic. How, How do you define what that corruption is?
1: I'll give you an example. Right now, Donald Trump is receiving a stream of payments, we don't know how much, millions of dollars, from business partners in the Philippines, Turkey, the United Arab Emirates, and other foreign countries. Those business partners are often very subject to the power of the state, the local state in their country. Trump's Turkish business partners were literally arrested during the crackdown after the Turkish coup, and then released. Trump's business partner in the Philippines is the present Filipino ambassador to the United States. Mm -hmm. So there are foreign states, many of them authoritarian, that have their fist or their grip on the throat of Donald Trump's business enterprise. This has an impact on how American government works. He's operating an active business while president. He claims to have separated himself, but as I show in the book, that it's not even a claim. It's, it's right. farcical. He hasn't done it. His two sons run the business. They're in the They act as his surrogates on TV. They're in the White House all the time. And they themselves have said they report to him regularly on how the business is doing and that he asks. I point out you – know, we hear this flare-up where the United States took sides between a you know, dispute between Qatar on the one side and Bahrain and Saudi Arabia on the other. And I point out Qatar had had its national – independence. not only had Qatar not booked the Trump Hotel mm-hmm. for its national independence day, unlike Bahrain and Saudi Arabia, which both did. But Qatar had been a tenant in the Trump Tower until 2014 and then had left the Trump Tower claiming the rent was too high and there had been some ill feeling. And a lot of this may explain America's foreign policy in the Persian Gulf. I just – I detail these examples. I think many readers will discover I'm not telling them things they don't know. Right. I'm telling them things they've forgotten because every day there's something that would have been the single biggest scandal in any previous administration and then there's another one.
0: Right. Right. Well, I mean, even now, the focus on, and again, going back to the man himself, not the actions, is on his mental state, on his physical health. And yeah. that all kind of landed at the same moment that you had these renewed accusations from a former porn star about sexual harassment.
1: Yeah. I've heard from people. They just I – f- I forgot about that. I, on, on his mental state, I, I think he's quite wily and I think he's got a gift. He's got the bully's intuition – for people's psychic weak spots. I mean, he, you know, with Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, he found the point of vulnerability. Look what he did to Ted Cruz. And this, I think, is a real example of how he works. How dare Donald Trump call anybody a liar? Right. But what he saw was that the person Ted Cruz was being on that stage... The Elmer Gantry figure was not who Ted Cruz was. Ted Cruz is a very intellectually sophisticated person. He is the most modern marriage of any of the people on the stage. The the one, the only one where the wife is a full partner in the political project and who is the, the, truly the most important advisor. At Goldman, didn't she he? was she ran Goldman the Goldman office in Texas. There are a lot of rich people in Texas. I mean, she is a substantial figure and and Ted Cruz's closest advisor. Not true of any of the other marriages on the So. So he's one person and Mm -hmm. he's famous. Like he's famously, you know, unexcited as a human being about the gay rights issue at the same time as he was the leading crusade. So the falseness, I mean, he's not, Ted Cruz isn't a liar the way Donald Trump is, but he's false in a way that Donald Trump, give him credit for this in the book. He's got one, there's one fault he doesn't have, which is he's not a hypocrite. He doesn't pretend to be a good person. He doesn't pretend to be a good dad. He doesn't pretend to be a good husband. He just, he makes no bones about who he is and, it's terrible, but it's who he is. And people look at them and say, well, Lisa's not trying to fool me.
0: Right. And it's interesting you use the word wily to describe him because the issue of, you know, his, as you said, sort of mental state, but also his intelligence is something that has been questioned. And you – previously worked in the Bush administration and, and George Bush was another person whose critics, you know, attacked him for sort of yeah. not being the brightest bulb. And then there was an argument, well, actually, he he is quite intelligent and he is very sophisticated in, in certain ways and has a very keen political sense. And I'm curious, given the fact that you've had personal experience with Bush and with Trump and that they've both been criticized in this particular way, if you see, like, any comparison whatsoever.
1: Presidents occupy a range of intelligence. We've had really brilliantly intelligent presidents, not always Herbert Hoover, probably one of the smartest presidents there ever was. His book on mining technology is still apparently, you know, much cited by people in the field. Um, You know, uh, other people are, you know, know, more mediocre intellects. How smart was Dwight Eisenhower? There's such a thing as not being smart enough. Mm -hmm. There's such a thing as being smart. George Bush, I I wouldn't say he was one of the most brilliant presidents America's ever had, but he, he was smart. He was hardworking. He had a kind of phony show of because he was born in New Haven and you know went to Yale and had that background it was he constructed this false front
0: right the sort of folksy texan
1: right and he also constructed he had the the other man was he was a much grouchier person mm-hmm. in private than he had this Reagan affect of he's always jolly but he could he could be pretty testy uh, he was not like Ronald Reagan that way but the, the difference between Trump and Bush and I know there are a lot of people who have negative feelings about Bush Bush was a public spirited person. Mm-hmm. And, and you may think he didn't. He was completely wrong in every way. And you don't like his conduct of the office, and he you might even disagree with his moral calls on interrogations. Bush wasn't there to make himself rich. Bush left the presidency substantially poorer than he entered it. And that has been true of every single president until now. Donald Trump will leave the presidency substantially richer than he entered it.
0: Well, one of the norms that you talk about that is certainly gone with this presidency, and I'm curious to hear if you think it can be restored. Is obviously the such there's such an opacity of his financial interests, and the yeah. fact that he d- never did file those tax returns, and right. that nobody ever asks. You know, yes. is that audit still going on? I'm curious. Like, do you think that there is a re- is a way to return from this point? I mean, how how do you get back to those kinds of standards?
1: If we get through this without too much damage, it'll be the work of a generation. A lot of the standards, uh, this is actually kind of unfortunate, but this wasn't, are going to have to be turned into formal law. Mm-hmm. If we get through this, it is not going to be voluntary anymore, whether a president publishes his or her tax returns. That, I think that will become a statute. And one of the things I think I take from this that we badly need is the disclosure, Should, in my opinion, should be imposed not just on the president. But on the president's immediate family.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, that would, was never a consideration was,
1: before. It, right. We, by the way, we've had presidents have people do doubt, doubtful things. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt's son, Franklin Jr., was a pretty shady figure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He then went on to become an incredible war hero. He won the Navy Cross and the Silver Star. Uh, Franklin proves that there's no connection at all between physical bravery and financial integrity. <laughs> right. <laughs> because he managed to be a really shady business guy, but a genuine – You know, he commanded Marines at Guadalcanal. But since Franklin Roosevelt Jr., presidential children, they've gotten into trouble from time to time. But they basically behave themselves. But it's always been voluntary. And I think after the Trump experience, again, and this is one of the ways that we become a more bureaucratic and – a lot of things that people just didn't do because they didn't do them. When I started the the research I, – I mean, I've been thinking about these issues and for a long time. And, and you know, there's research in this book that goes all the way back to work I did in 2014, in some cases 2007 – But when I really intensely began focusing on this, just after Donald Trump's election, I sat down with a lot of alumni of the White House Counsel's office. That's the in-house lawyer to the president. It's not just one person; there are usually a dozen people working there, Democrats and Republicans. And I sat down and said, "Okay, if a president," I then came up with a bunch of shady things that I thought a Trump president might do. What would stop him? I remember a friend of mine who worked in the Obama White House listening to me and saying, "You have a really criminal mind. I'm kind of disturbed (laughs) talking to you," but. The general view is, well, no one ever wrote. No president would do that.
0: And how many of those things has he actually done thus far?
1: Well, the problem of is, your dark imagination, many of them we don't, we wouldn't know. Right. So one of the things I said, well, what if don't somebody, some real estate developer in Malaysia, said, um, "I will cut a, a trust. I, I'll give a twenty-five percent share of my next project mm-hmm. to a trust registered to the Trump family. If you make do this and." How would we even know that that had happened? Because the financial one of the problems with the presidential financial disclosure forms I've signed them is they're meant to capture ordinary people, so they're very interested in what debts do you owe,
0: right? Income and
1: yeah, what assets do you own? But if I am a partner in a corporate, if I am a beneficiary of a trust and the trust has debts, it's not it, these forms are not written to capture that kind of behavior. So in much of Donald Trump's debt according to Timothy O'Brien, who's like the leading expert on this, is held in special purpose entities or upstream. I mean, so that there are – Trump will have an interest in a building which will have a mortgage to the Bank of China. But he doesn't have to declare that because he does not owe that money himself.
0: I mean, those of us who grew up in New York remember well, and it did surface during the election, uh, that that Trump went through bankruptcy, that that he was in many – you know, at certain stages re- regarded as a real failure as a businessman, and yet – we don't fully even know what his net worth is yeah. because he never did file those papers. So that brings me back to the intelligence question because in Fire and Fury, Michael Wolf suggests strongly that he didn't ever expect necessarily even want to become president, that that wasn't the goal really. And I'm just curious. I mean, do you believe that? And do you think that he is sort of, I guess, is he responsible for electing himself? Like was it due to his own crafty – political mind that he somehow knew this was possible, or is this some kind of sort of terrible storm of factors beyond his control?
1: Donald Trump began running for president in 1988. He took a very serious run at it in 2000. I don't know what's in his head. Narcissists, and I I think he is in the—I mean, we're not supposed to diagnose, but I I think he meets—if you read the diagnostic, he meets the condition uh, they contend both with outward ideology of self, overlaid terrible inner weaknesses and self-doubt. So maybe there's a part of him that didn't want it. But he's been doing – he's been preparing for a long time. Certainly, there's something flukish about the way he came into office. If if Hillary Clinton had got 80,000 fewer votes in California and 80,000 more in the Midwest, Donald Trump not only would – it wouldn't even have been a close election. Mm -hmm. Uh, He got half a point more of the popular vote than Michael Dukakis did. South of Romney, south of Al Gore, it it was not a close election. It would not have been close had he lost. But it was not just a fluke because there's a powerful question about Hillary Clinton, which she got 48 point something I now forget of the vote. President Mm -hmm. Obama's approval rating at that time was in the mid 50s and the economy was expanding. So the, the political scientists tell us if the Incumbent president is in the 50s and if the economy is expanding, the party of the president should be able to pick up a third term. What happened? And that is a deeper story. I don't think the Trump people did that but I think that has to do with very hard work by Republicans in the states to make it more difficult for democratic constituents to vote since 2010. I think that had to do with some
0: – With the gerrymandering and all of the – Well,
1: especially the, the new voter rules. And I, I, I have a chapter called Rigged System. Mm-hmm. I, I use a lot of this, the, the phrases of the time and then put new meaning into them. Mm-hmm. Describe how effectively and how rapidly, how new these rules are. Yeah. Many of them post – some post 2010, many post 2014 that made it more difficult. The Russia piece is the last straw and mm-hmm. that is an important part of the story.
0: You use the phrase rigged system, which we tend to associate with the political left. And there is, of course, the argument now that it has become rigged in in perhaps the opposite direction, which brings up the whole sort of never Trump movement and Mm -hmm. label. And you're associated with that. Is that a label that you embrace?
1: I don't reject it, but I never used it because um, when Donald Trump came on the scene, I, I described my first reaction was Trump curious because The never-Trump people, the first never-Trump people were super ideological conservatives Mm -hmm. who noted that Donald Trump deviated in all kinds of important ways from conservative orthodoxy. I, although I'm a Republican and a conservative, I'm not orthodox. And I thought those deviations were promising. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Not that he was promising. I never had any time for him. But I thought, well, gee, you know, he's talking about things that this party needs. If if he jolts... The Republicans away from Ryanism, if he makes them understand, you know, health insurance guarantee is here to say that tax cuts for the top brackets are not the end of our politics, that this opioid thing that is ravaging the United States is causing life expectancies to decline, something that didn't happen in the Great Depression. This is important that the immigration orthodoxies that, that the party subscribes to are out of date. And then somebody mm-hmm. will steal this stuff. He will. He will find it. He will popularize it and then somebody responsible will step in. So I was not – so in 2015 and into early 2016, I, you know, th- this, could be, this could be helpful. Obviously, he's not going to be the nominee. That's mm-hmm. unthinkable and in, the, and in the crazy possibility that he did become the nominee, certainly he wouldn't win, I just said. But I was not implacably opposed to him from the start. I was interested in what he might offer.
0: So there was a point at which you thought you could possibly support him.
1: No, 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 no. It was him. I mean, Right. But, but uh, some
0: of his ideas. Do
1: you, do you know the story of the Plotkin diamond?
0: Tell us the story of the Plotkin diamond. So
1: two women are at, at the beauty parlor together and one glances over at the hand of the other and she notices this amazing diamond ring and uh, she can't help it. She asks. Oh this thank you it's a is indeed a beautiful ring. It's a legendary ring uh it's been worn by empresses and queens and it's had fabled adventures. but like many famous stones, it also comes with a terrible, terrible curse. What's the curse, Mr. Plotkin <laughs>
0: So, you know, it's interesting when you talk about those never-Trumpers and their sort of innate dislike or even, you know, revulsion with Trump. Part of it initially, it seems, was a large part of it was about character. But another part was about his ideology, propo- was his ideology and, and, and and the kinds of things that he was proposing doing, some of which ran against sort of if not all conservative ideology, certainly neoconservative ideology and the sort of ideology of the intellectual mm-hmm. right, like he, immigration.
1: He, he talked about preserving Medicare as mm-hmm. we know it. He talked about leaving Medicaid untouched. That may have been a slip of the tongue because he may not know or may not have known then the difference in Medicare and Medicaid, but he pres- pledged to leave Medicaid alone. So that famous issue of National Review where some two dozen people pledged to never Trump, mm-hmm. they, they cited above all ideological complaints that he wasn't ideologically conservative. And But half of them, by the way, ultimately have made their peace with him and in some cases, very enthusiastically
0: so. Well, that was my next question. I mean, I'm curious for you. You've spent most of your career both, you know, in, in the administration and then outside as, a, as a, a writer in general coming from the right, being ideologically um, sort of simpatico aligned with many of the people who have now, are now supporting him, yeah. both the, those people who are currently in office but also among journalists.
1: So, so why did I not go along?
0: Or, so, or what is that like?
1: I, I prefer to focus on the positive support. There are many, I would say, let me put turn it around because I don't want to be invidious about this. And I'm not going to use names in this part either. But there are people who I thought would have succumbed mm-hmm. who did not. And when I think about how my party and my world has reacted, I, I prefer to focus on the people of, of whom I feel proud. And many of them exposed to pressures much more intense than anything I've had to deal with both personal, political, financial. There are people who have taken real financial losses and have not yielded. So congratulations to them. For me, I came into the conservative world and the fundamental my you know everyone has one fundamental commitment that is the reason they're a conservative rather than something else. And for me, it's always been about American global leadership. Mm-hmm. And which I've always seen by the way something that had to be done through alliances, because America was never more than a third of the world economy. Through my, most of my lifetime, it's been a fifth of the global economy, and today it's below that. It has to work as part of a system. And it also has to work as part of a system because if you're a big country that doesn't play by other people's rules, all the other actors combine against you. Right. So the American leadership has always been based on consent that America's friends understand. You know, instead of we we can we can benefit from this system and we accept that the hegemon will follow the rules. So for me, it was just Donald Trump was on the thing. He, he – re- rejected all of that as a matter of principle. And then there is just the fact that was observable from the start of the penetration of his campaign by Russians. I spent a lot of time in Central Europe in 2016. I, I wrote an article that was never published in The Atlantic about Hungary. I cannibalized a lot of that research for the first piece I read about Donald Trump, the first big piece. But there's a playbook here. And it's been at work in other situations in the Western world since 2011. Mm-hmm. And I could see that happening. You know, there's one popular conservative radio host who opens his every interview by asking his guests whether they think Alger Hiss was guilty or innocent, who's become a reconciled to Trump. I think Alger Hiss was guilty and he shouldn't have sent all of those agricultural documents to the Soviet Union in the 1930s. But compared to the guy who occupies the the Oval Office, Alger Hiss's infractions look distinctly minor.
0: I, I think that, that there are two kind of debates that critics of Trump—it's almost like a parlor game, but not a fun one—seem to play, which is like, what is the one one norm that he overturned that you sort of was the unforgivable thing? Whether it was the tax returns, or mm-hmm. the access Hollywood, or the debate or whatever, as you've pointed out earlier, there were so many, it sort of they they run together. And now the question seems to be among critics of Trump, what is it that scares you most? What's the biggest threat? And you talked earlier about the sort of the Mm long-term threats, the kind of the the long-term corruption and, and disintegration of norms. But is that what sort of keeps you up at night about this? Well
1: Korea keeps me up at night because for everything else, there's both time to head it off and there are opportunities at cost. To repair it. I was offered when I was young a, a story of American life, which was the story of the e- ever greater expansion of American democracy. There, That was the textbook. You know? And uh, Andrew Jackson makes sure that um, all white men can vote regardless of property. And then comes um, emancipation and the post-Civil War amendments. And then black men are allowed to vote. And then comes women's suffrage. And then the vote is lowered to 18-year-olds. And poll taxes are removed. And you know, ev- it's an ever wider Franchise, this and is it's,
0: sounding very progressive. <laughs> well,
1: that, that But that was the story Americans told themselves.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it had some elements of truth to it. But what, what has also been true is that the story of American democracy is a story of, ba- uh, of CSOC, back, yeah. their backwards mov- movements. Reconstruction is the most spectacular, but there have been others too. In the presidential election of 1872, about, there were about 700,000 people, black and white, living in the state of South Carolina. And those 700,000 people cast about 100,000 ballots. Half a century later in 1924, by then there were 1.7 million people, a million more living in South Carolina. And those 1.7 million people, a million more than in 1872 cast 50,000 ballots, half as many. Now, South Carolina still had elections
0: mm-hmm.
1: and they still had courts. And the courts weren't obviously unfair. You could – if you at least if you were white, you could write – you could at least theoretically open a newspaper and publish anything you wanted. But a state that had been something like a democracy – had ceased to be one uh, without anybody even really thinking it had changed. Those are the fates that I see. America has a lot, had a long struggle with corruption and social strife. In the 19th century, America the most violent labor relations anywhere in the industrial world. Um, it had terrible hostility between groups and terrible terrorism you know, and extremist movements. Those were largely soothed in the middle years of this Century. All of those things can go backwards. You know, most of the ethical rules of the federal government, which is which has historically been mo- much more ethical than state and local governments, those are post nineteen seventy five facts. I mean, that's a long time ago, but it's not that long ago. You could see. I mean, we've already seen that the, the transparency around camp presidential finance that that's all that was dead in twenty twelve.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: It's deader now than it was in twenty twelve, and the overt use of money. As the most decisive thing in politics. That is true now in a way that it has never been, never been true before, even in the 19th century. So there, there are a lot of things to, to worry about. For me, look, there's, there's so many unforgivable things about Donald Trump. The, the thing that disgusts me most mm-hmm. is the cruelty. And they're the spectacular incidents to the Khan family, to your colleague here at the New York Times, cr- mockery and derision. I think sometimes it's the smaller stories Mm -hmm. that most capture the imagination. Um, He promised his son Barron a dog if he were elected president. A friend of the family then offered them the gift of a dog.
4: Mm -hmm.
1: Trump invited the friend to show the son a photograph of the dog. And when the son's eyes welled with tears and he said, oh, I want one, Trump told him, if I'm elected, you'll have one. And then he broke his promise. Hmm. Kind of guy is that. But – I most, if that's what most disgusts me that's an unspectacular story, and yet it's, some, it's so cruel, but what affronts me is working with the Russians that meeting in Trump Tower mm-hmm. we are so used we, we step by step we are you know we, we, we're, we're looking for ever more outrageous things because of the last outrage that that meeting in Trump Tower should never have happened right It should have had it happen, it should have lasted a minute and it should have been followed by a phone call to the FBI and that's what anybody running for president ever before would have done if offered intelligence from a foreign espionage force. Once you knew what it was, I mean, I don't want to be illusioned about this. Candidates, campaigns listen to stuff and they take meetings with disreputable people. That's just what happens. Uh, But let's not be cynical about this. They also have norms. And the norm, you don't work with a hostile foreign intelligence service, that's a pretty basic norm. And I can't get past that.
0: Okay, one final question. There's so much, obviously, about Trump that critics like you have issue with. There's also the fact that your party, traditionally Republican Party, has become so split by this presidency. And I'm curious if, in terms of your own politics and your own identity, if, if the Trump presidency has caused you to reexamine where you stand, or do you feel like it's it's reaffirmed?
1: Both are true. I might mean, keep personalities out of this book, mm-hmm. in, including my own. At the very beginning— I talk very slightly about this. I mean, I, there are places where I've put some of those reflections on, on the record. and uh, There may be more. But I think it's both true. I mean, the theme of the Trump presidency, one of the themes has been what the economists call revealed preferences. And a lot of us are discovering what are – we had priorities that we thought went side by side. Mm-hmm. And then you have to make choices. And then you discover what your real priorities are. And what you also discover is sometimes there are casual things that you don't think about, that when you see them in more extreme form. I voted for Hillary Clinton in 2016. That was a very difficult thing to do. But I had never been an admirer. And I accepted and repeated uh, and made my own jokes about many of the famous criticisms of her. And you sort of look back on that campaign, on the strong gender split, not only between Trump and Hillary Clinton voters, but mm-hmm. between Bernie Sanders voters and Hillary Clinton voters, and you look at some of the journalists who were most vociferous against her, and then what we now know about what they were doing. That, I look back on the, you know, my ear only covered a certain range of hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things there that I, that you know, which is not to say that that the criticisms of her ethical standards were wrong, because. She should have had higher ethical standards. That whole family should. But yeah, you 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 re-examine some of those things. I think we're all. If you're not changed by an experience like this, and here's the hopeful thing. I mean, I end the book, and it's not just a tack on. It's it, it reflects some deep experiences and deep connections with people whom I otherwise wouldn't have known. Now, I, I'm I'm sure you're too responsible for this to be true of you, but it sometimes happens for less. that You are on the highway and you get into a bit of a doze, <laughs> <laughs> and and then suddenly you see like the headlights of a truck right? and you you swerve out of the way. And that jolt of adrenaline gets you safely all the way home. It may be that Trump is that truck and that we are all going to be jolted by this experience. And if we can carry with us a determination to not only to be better but to keep that alive all the way home, He may end up, after all, doing some good.
0: Well, let's end on that very optimistic note. The (laughs) near-fatal crash on the highway is our version of optimism here. David, thanks so much for being here. The book, again, is Trumpocracy, the Corruption of the American Republic by David Frum. Helen Thorpe joins us now from Denver, Colorado. She is the author of Soldier Girls and just like Us, It is written for The Times Magazine as well as other places. Her new book is called "The Newcomers: Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. Helen, thank you for joining us.
5: It's my pleasure. thanks for having me on
0: so the situation that you write about in this book is 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 almost impossible to believe just from the outset. there are, it's a classroom of 22 students from how many countries?
5: They're from 11 countries, but speak 14 different languages because some of those countries don't have one common language.
0: Wow. Okay. And they end up in a classroom in Denver, Colorado. How did this come about?
5: It's a special classroom called a newcomer center, and these do exist across the country. But South High School in Denver was one of the earliest high schools to create What's now known as a newcomer center. And it's a specific classroom with a teacher trained in English language acquisition,
0: mm-hmm. but it's
5: also got some additional supports for kids who are showing up after their schooling has been interrupted for a number of years, generally by war. Um, so this room had a therapist visiting the room throughout the school year. And um, a lot of community groups offering additional volunteers or youth clothing, all kinds of support.
0: And when did these classrooms start? When did when did South High School start to host these newcomer classrooms?
5: So in South's case, it was two full decades ago, and with twenty years of experience, the school has has just gained great institutional knowledge about of what parts of the world produce a lot of refugees or immigrants and what are those families grappling with when they arrive here. For example, the teacher in this room had been teaching in this classroom for a number of years, so when students showed up whose families had fled from Burma, he was first of all familiar with some of the languages that they spoke, Mm
2: -hmm. but he knew
5: that those kids probably had never lived outside of a refugee camp before, because that's very typical for those families. And he knew that in addition to getting used to the school environment and a big urban city and a bus system, that their languages were also really, really far away from English in structure and origin. So learning English was just going to be especially challenging for those kids, and those kids were going through an especially big transition.
0: So when you have refugees coming to this country and settling uh, across the the country, I mean, do they come to specifically, are they sent to districts that have these newcomer schools set up? Or can the families request that they come to a a school like South High School that's set up to accommodate these kinds of kids? The
5: resettlement system that we have is it's really robust, and it, it's actually very well organized, but I think because there's been a portrayal or a lot of political rhetoric around resettlement raising a lot of questions, the process isn't very well understood or, or often described in the press. Most of the kids in this classroom entered the country as refugees, so I'll, I'll just focus on that process. Some of the kids in the room were also asylum seekers in a, kind of a whole separate area
0: of mm-hmm.
5: immigration law. But um, the refugee process, to to be designated as a refugee, first of all, you have to have fled your country of origin under duress, and the United Nations specifically designates certain people refugees if they meet certain criteria. And then those people are chosen for resettlement by developed countries like the U.S. Mm -hmm. When they arrive here, resettlement agencies work with the federal government to decide who goes where. In Colorado, we happen to have three refugee agencies. They bring people here and help them resettle. And Denver has become a hub of resettlement, like many kind of medium-sized cities across the country, because we're a little bit more affordable than some of the very big cities. And because over the years, we've developed communities of Congolese people, Iraqi people, people from Burma. So we have churches and thriving communities that will kind of help welcome the latest newcomers. Here. So the resettlement agencies relocate people to Denver because there's an apparatus here that's uh, sort of pre-existing arrivals and a community well- waiting to welcome those people where they can speak their home languages, attend church services in languages that they know already and have a kind of ready-made community waiting for them.
0: You've covered immigration as a journalist. Were you aware that this school existed for a long time, or how did you become aware of this particular classroom and how the school operates?
5: So in my first book, Just Like Us, I was writing about four young women whose families had come from Mexico, and they were split down the middle in terms of their legal status. Two didn't have documents, two did, and I was looking at their different opportunities. One of those young women, just coincidentally, later went on to work at South High School, She was one of the two young women who did possess legal documents. She worked for the Denver Public School District for a time, and she began telling me stories about South High School, and then I heard more from others. So I knew that it was a place that was welcoming people from all around the world, but I didn't know a lot about it until I showed up in the summer of 2015 and went to interview the principal just about refugee resettlement as I was doing background interviews, wondering if I could find a story on that subject. And the principal said, I read your first book, Just Like Us. I I know that you've written about immigration. You would treat our students sensitively. If you wanted to spend a year inside this building, you would be welcome here. And as a journalist, that's just an incredibly rare opportunity to be invited into an institution. And I think especially when it's a vulnerable population, refugee students just arriving here. Um, So I knew it was an incredible opportunity, but... Then when I put myself inside the Newcomer Center, I I became perplexed at first because the kids were saying absolutely nothing. (laughs) I didn't know if I could write about them. There was no dialogue. I couldn't get to know my main characters. So I I was very confused at the outset of the project about whether it would work or not.
0: But you ended up hiring 14 translators as part of the, Mm -hmm. the process.
5: So there's a nonprofit here in Denver called Spring Institute, and it works with refugees who have particular skills in language. And they train those refugees to become interpreters and translators to work with, you know, the the incoming refugee population. Spring Institute provided just about all the interpreters that I hired. I found there was no way for me to explain myself to the kids in the classroom mm-hmm. without hiring interpreters. I couldn't walk up to them and say, Hi, I'm a journalist. Right. Could I interview you? So we did we did background interviews, you know, with every student to make sure they all knew who I was and to see did they want to participate or not. Right. And then some of the kids started inviting me home. And I think that's when I began to get a much better sense of their journey here and to know their family.
0: So you mentioned that, you know, you get to the classroom and no one's talking. Of course, presumably they're not talking because they don't speak English, but they're also teenagers and in a very new and unsettling environment. I mean, what was that? what was that classroom like at the beginning of that school year?
5: What I soon came to appreciate was there's actually something called the silent phase or receptive phase of language acquisition. And anybody learning a new language, much like a baby who's just arrived in the world, goes through an extensive listening phase and your your ears becoming accustomed to the, the way words sound in a new language and your mind is trying to assign meaning to those terms. And those things happen. You, you learn to listen, hear the sound and assign Meaning before you start to verbalize. So, slowly over the year, the kids began to speak, you know, very hesitantly at first and in very comical ways. But by the end of the year, their personalities emerged and they become sort of fully fledged teenagers, just doing all the things that teenagers do flirting and fighting and having sleepovers. And it was really charming to watch the room transform from terrified at the outset, to far more confident by the end of the school year.
0: So not only are they entering into a totally new environment and not an easy one, given that that they're not going into a classroom filled with kids that speak their language from their own countries, they're also fleeing what I imagine are very difficult circumstances in which they may have witnessed war or seen family members killed. I mean, how did the class, how did the school deal with kids who were presumably dealing with PTSD or at the very least have gone through recent trauma?
5: To describe that in personal terms, there were two sisters in the room, Jacqueline and Mariam, who were born in Iraq, in Baghdad. Their father, who was Christian, had sided with the U.S. military when we invaded that country, and he was then targeted. The family fled. Their father ended up returning to Iraq looking for work and went missing. He's presumed dead. So their mother was living with these girls in Syria, where they had fought refuge when this, the Syrian civil war broke out there. And they did witness very difficult things. There were extensive car bombings. About 100 of their neighbors died in their neighborhood, and then they had to flee from Syria, so they became basically double refugees. When they entered this country, those girls were bringing all that difficulty, the traumatic memories with them, but but also grieving the loss of their father and living in a household with just one income earner, their mom, who was struggling to make it here as a, a single mother. So in addition to their struggle with the difference between Arabic and English, and those differences are extensive, they, w- they just had so much on their plate, and their teacher could see that they were struggling to be fully present in the room. The therapist in the room, Jewish Family Services, was providing school-based therapy. It's a really original, innovative idea where knowing that these families have difficulty accessing mental health the nonprofit had pioneered the use of school-based therapy where a therapist shows up in the classroom Mm
0: -hmm. and then
5: figures out which kids are having a lot of trouble with their transition and provides extra support. So their therapist began taking those students out for individual therapy and I think really worked with them to help them try and get settled here. And over the course of the school year, you did see them engage much more. You know, at first they seemed in a fog and it was very hard for them to focus and pay attention. But by the end of the school year, they were participating a lot more in the classroom. So schools like South develop an expertise in dealing with kids who are grappling with things like this. I think the 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 educational you know, jargon for this is trauma-informed schools, and South is definitely one of them. So there's a lot of support built into the school system to help the teacher in the newcomer center there. When I'm going around talking about the book, that's the number one thing that teachers wish they had. Mm -hmm. And they come up to me saying, how do I get a therapist like Eddie Williams had in his classroom as well?" Wow. They know their kids need that support. So this is
0: one classroom within a public high school. And the rest of the students presumably, or the majority of the rest, are not or have not been refugees. How does this classroom function within the rest of the school, and how, how are the students in the rest of the school sort of educated and, and trained about how to welcome these kids into their school environment?
5: One of the really beautiful things about South, and one of the things that really distinguishes South from many other schools, is the level of integration that the foreign-born students achieve by the time they become fluent in English. So, I was inside the Newcomer Center with kids just arriving, but elsewhere in the school building, there were kids who had gone through English language acquisition classes already. About two-thirds of the school is native-born, but a full one-third of the school is foreign-born. Mm-hmm. And so there's great mixing happening at South, and both the faculty and the student body have embraced this idea that the foreign-born students are an asset who have a lot to add, to the school population as a whole. And there's this idea that while the native-born kids can help the foreign-born kids acquire English and become American, at the same time, the foreign-born kids can help the American-born kids become better global citizens Hmm. with a bigger understanding of who else is on the globe and what the rest of the world is like. And there's just a great celebration of all these cultures represented in the school building so when I would visit the student Senate, I found there kids who had been newcomer students with the same teacher, Eddie Williams, a couple of years earlier, becoming student leaders. And that kind of level of social integration, it's not all happening in, in every school serving these populations. And it's a great model for what's possible. I really grew to admire South tremendously for the, the fact that it was achieving this kind of level of integration and that the... Native-born students were treating the foreign-born students with such dignity and respect.
0: That all sounds so admirable and and lovely and ideal, but of course, you can't. I imagine ignore they can't ignore the sort of larger backdrop of America's overwhelming mm-hmm. xenophobic sort of uh, anti-immigration stance at this time. What did I'm assuming the kids became aware of that over the year if they weren't aware of it when they arrived? How did they deal with it?
5: They did become aware of it for sure and primarily on the city buses and light rail trains that they used to commute from their neighborhoods to south. So a lot of the foreign-born kids, their parents are taking whatever jobs, you know, they can get in America just trying to pay the rent and they're, they're working, you know, cleaning hotels or working in meatpacking plants And those families are living in affordable housing on the very periphery of the city. Mm -hmm. And the kids have long commutes to South. And it's it's generally on the city buses that they're interacting with other residents. And that's where if they're wearing a headscarf or a hijab or if they look visibly foreign, they generally ran into really vocal prejudice, particularly after the election of Donald Trump, which in the case of the kids I was following was their second year in the U.S. So they did get called all sorts of names, and they were told to go home, and they did run into all of the xenophobia that exists. South offered a very different kind of environment, and the school kept trying to support the students and tell them not everybody in America felt that way. But it was particularly scary for the kids with the election of Donald Trump to run into this very vocal prejudice that seemed to spill out in the weeks after the election, they're still grappling with it. I don't think there's an easy solution. I feel that South is ahead of the rest of the country in, in recognizing that with the technology that we have today and with the news cycle that we have today and with all of the changes in the displacement of so many people, that the right answer is for all of us to evolve into more global-minded citizens, paying more attention to what's happening everywhere else and learning how to welcome those people who are forced to migrate and displaced from their homes. So I feel the students and the faculty at South are setting an example for the rest of us of what we can become. I understand fully that we're not there yet. I hope as a country we can get there.
0: That sounds like the the greater lessons are possibly for the students and all of us outside the classroom. Helen, thank you so much for being here.
5: You're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: Helen Thorpe is the author of The Newcomers, Finding Refuge, Friendship, and Hope in an American Classroom. We have something really exciting to tell you about here coming up, which is a new book club, Now Read This. It's a collaboration between us here at The New York Times and the PBS NewsHour. And what will happen is there is a Facebook page, you can go online and find it, called the Now Read This Book Club. Every month we are going to be picking a new book, and readers can submit questions for the author and learn more about the book and the author online. At the end of every month, there'll be an interview on air on the PBS NewsHour with the author, and it will include many of your questions. So this is really a participatory book club, and we're super excited to announce the first author. On the book club and the first book choice, which is Jesmyn Ward's *Sing Unburied*, sing. I think many of our listeners here and readers of the New York Times Book Review will be familiar with this book. Of course, it was one of our ten best books of 2017. And it won the National Book Award. And just a few more things about Jasmine Ward. I won't go into the book uh, too much because hopefully you will discover it yourselves. But Jasmine is kind of an amazing figure. Um, she is the first woman to win the National Book Award twice for fiction. Her second novel, Salvage the Bones, won the National Book Award in 2011. And Jasmine does not only write fiction. She also edited a great anthology, The Fire Next Time, that came out in 2016. And then that was an anthology of essays about race. And she has also written a memoir, very moving memoir called Men We Reaped about the death of her brother and four other young African American men in Mississippi. She's just kind of a force and really writes about her community. She's from Delisle, Mississippi, which is a small rural town. She's the first person in her family to go to college. She's went on to go to Stanford. She was a Wallace Stegner fellow, just a million and one accomplishments. And she still lives down in Mississippi And so we're very excited to have this novel, Sing, Unburied, Sing, as our first featured book and look forward to having many of you participate. So again, you can find it on Facebook. It's called the Now Read This Book Club. And our first pick is, once again, Jesmyn Ward's Sing, Unburied, Sing. Joining us now to talk about what we and everyone else is reading, we've got John Williams, Greg Coles, and Tina Jordan. Hi, guys. Hey, Pamela. All right. Let's start with John.
4: You can start with me. Yep, <laughs> I am reading Henry James's *The Portrait of a Lady*, um, which people have probably heard of. The depressing thing is that I read 250 pages of it over the weekend, and I thought I was going to kind of fly through, and I haven't read a page since. <laughs> um, so I need to maybe carve out some time this coming weekend. I am a huge fan of William James, Henry's, Henry's brother, as anyone who knows me knows.
0: And you wrote very beautifully about him. Oh, thank the you. Times. Recently, a few in a weeks paper.
4: Ago. And so I think I was exposed to Henry when I was in college. I forget what I read, but I think like a lot of people, I had a hard time getting into him because he has these very ornate sentences and sometimes the syntax can be very jumbled on purpose. And so... in
0: late Henry James too. Right? Yeah, and late Henry
4: James especially. So I had kind of cast him off as someone who I, in my youth uh, I wasn't into. And then once I started to love the writing of William, which is much sort of clearer and I thought I have to give Henry another chance to kind of round out the family. So I, I read a couple of novels a few years ago, and now I think Portrait is probably the most classic of them that I'm that I'm reading, and I'm loving it. I mean, the there are sentences that do make you want to strangle him because they're almost per, you know they're intentionally and perversely sort of hard to to track. But it's it's a great story. Isabel Archer is a terrific character, and there are really great scenes of dialogue. I think that he's great at these sort of conversations people have about their social standing and you know who's interested in whom and.
0: I had a similar early negative Henry James experience with the Golden Bowl in college, which I think I I read like a chapter of um, Mm -hmm. before casting it aside. But (laughs) I remember with Portrait of a Lady that on the last page I wept. (laughs) It was very dramatic. Very dramatic. Well,
4: if I come in one day at work next week with red eyes, you'll know that I've finished the book. (laughs) Greg, what about you? This is much more – Contemporary.
2: It is. Well, um, what I had been reading was Elizabeth Hardwick's essays, that I recently collected um, and issued by New York Review of Books. Um, and they are lovely and lucid. And um, she's so smart on writers and writing. And I've really been enjoying that. But I recently uh, flew down to Memphis, and Elizabeth Hardwick um, seemed to me not to be airplane reading. (laughs) And so (laughs) instead, um, I'm now reading—I've set Elizabeth Hardwick aside for the moment. I'll I'll come back to her when I'm done with this book. But I'm reading Attica Locke's Bluebird, Bluebird. It is— a mystery. Um, It is part of a series of mysteries that she's writing, all set in East Texas, which is where she grew up, featuring a black Texas ranger, Darren Matthews, who um, kind of travels that corridor, the route, I think it's 59, the Route 59 corridor um, in eastern Texas, finding bodies, (laughs) you know, (laughs) investigating murders Mm -hmm. as bodies turn up along the way. And this book continues that and features a, a few different murders that he is investigating. One is the killing of a member of the Aryan Brotherhood gang. The suspect in that is actually a friend of Darren Matthews' and he is convinced that his, his friend is not the killer in this case and so he's trying to protect his friend and find out who really did it. And then seemingly unrelated, there are a couple of bodies that have turned up in a bayou, kind of washed up in, in a creek um, in a small town, one black, one white, the feds are convinced that there must be some connection there somehow, and Darren Matthews, the Texas Ranger, is investigating that. So it's beautifully written, actually. I mean, it's fairly straightforward as as a mystery, and it and she hits all the plot elements. She used to be a TV writer for the show Empire. I um, mean, and she really knows what she's doing in terms of putting a story together. But it is really a great portrait of small-town, rural Texas um, on on the whole Eastern Quarter, and especially about black life there, which is something that that you don't hear a lot about.
3: I don't know. As someone whose family has deep roots in East Texas, I'll say, two. I read it and loved it. It it reads so accurately. Like, people talk like that, you know?
2: Yeah. And, I mean, she's very good on the psychology, again, of, I mean— Kind of the the pride and also Mm -hmm. um, arguing with the place that you're from. You're proud to be from there, but you also take real issue with it and um, kind of the the stubbornness of of staying there. So um, it's got all of that going on.
0: John, are you proud to be from Long Island? I think we've addressed this before. (laughs) (laughs) I'm
4: nothing but proud to be from Long Island. And I know you share that sentiment. (laughs) And I've also, I lived in Texas for many years. So I feel like, you know, Tina
3: and we've got a triangle here. going. Yeah, Tina, what are you reading? So I'm reading Catherine Graham's personal history. I went to see The Post, I guess, two weeks ago. I have a weakness for journalism movies. And I came out of the theater and I thought, did I read that when it came out, I'm not sure that I did. So I immediately went and got a copy and it's it's everything that you think that it's going to be, you know, this woman who's sort of thrust into the middle of history despite her own, you know, introverted instincts. And it starts with her childhood, you know, her distant father, college, you know, there's a lot about her marriage, which is really interesting. I hadn't understood that Philip Graham was a manic depressive, so I knew that he suffered from depression. But, like, this is the 50s and early 60s, and this is before, like, people were medicated and got help. And so it was really a terrible disease to have. And I, I also hadn't realized how troubled their marriage was. There's a scene in the book where the phone rings. It's 1962. It's Christmas Eve. She picks it up at the exact same time her husband picks it up. And he's talking to a girlfriend hmm. and she hears it. Yeah. And it's just written, you know, just like almost matter-of-factly, but and sparingly, but the emotion, and you're just she's nothing but gracious to this woman in the following pages. And as it turns out, her husband doesn't end up filing for divorce. There's another great line where he tells her, It's okay, you know, I'm gonna buy out your shares of the company. And she's like, you can have the divorce but not the
0: company. <laughs> yeah, so I loved that book so much, and it was interesting reading, as listeners may recall, Ben Bradley's book, A Good Life. I think it was last year as a kind of counterpoint mm-hmm. because hers, they're both good books, but hers is an excellent book, and his is a really fun memoir, but they're writing often about the same period, and he's just like, yeah, it was really great. It was super fun. You know, he's just, it's called A Good Life, and it reads like that. And her memoirs, I think, something a cut above. But speaking about politics, before I talk about what I'm reading, I just have to say that this week on the bestseller list, it's like all politics with a couple of exceptions. So Fire and Fury, of course, is still at number one for the third week in a row. But there are one, two, three, four... Five, six debuts, and they are all very much of the moment. So at number two, former New York Times reporter David K. Johnston has his new book, It's Even Worse Than You Think. It's kind of about what you would think it's about.
4: What 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 is it about?
0: <laughs> what's it about um it's, it's
3: about our love <laughs> it's about it's about <laughs> yeah. what's been going on in the background while you've been diverted by all the tweets and you know the melodrama his point is like look he's got people in positions like at all the you know parts of government and they're like enacting rules and things are changing and like the food you well, eat right the food you eat the
0: water you drink it's all like I mean, it's interesting because that's sort of the same approach as David Fromm's Trumpocracy, which debuts at number six, where he's saying, like, let's, let's stop focusing on the character of President Trump and actually look at the actions and look at what it is that he's doing in office. Mm-hmm. So that's also new. And then at number five, Together We Rise by the Women's March organizers and Condé Nast. At number seven, How Democracies Die, which our critic Jennifer Salai reviewed in the paper mm-hmm. last week together with Trumpocracy. At number 11, Neil Ferguson's The Square and the Tower. Again, not totally political, but it's about network theory. So of the moment, too, in its own <laughs> inscrutable way. And then at number 12, When They Call You a Terrorist by Patrice Kahn cullors and Asha Bandele, also very much of our moment about Black Lives Matter. Yeah, uh, she's
4: a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter movement. It's a memoir.
0: So – very political bestseller list. Um, that's not happening over on the fiction side.
4: And it looks like you're reading something non-political.
0: I am reading something non-political, although Also, you know, very contemporary novel. Lauren Christensen, our colleague, talked about it last week on the podcast. "The Perfect Nanny" by Leila Slimani. This is the book that won the Prix Goncourt last year, and Leila is the first Moroccan to win that prize it's interesting. It's it's sort of positioned here as a thriller between the, the kind of presentation of the book and the title, The Perfect Nanny. In French, the title is Lullaby. But it's a very serious novel, and it, it takes its inspiration from a real event that happened. I think anyone, you all probably remember this, there was a terrible criminal case, I think about 10 years ago, where it might not have been that long, where a nanny on the Upper West Side murdered two children. And So this book sort of is set in Paris and uses that as its inspiration. Is it more of a
4: psychological portrait than a thriller?
0: It's more of a psychological portrait than a thriller and it's a why done it, you know, because the first line is the baby is dead. It took only a few seconds. The doctor said he didn't suffer. As a parent, I have to say reading this, especially at the beginning, is excruciating. I'm sure. It's just – it's excruciating and almost – more than anything that I could imagine, and therefore I read on. And I also <laughs> read on the plane. We know your penchant for dark materials. That's all right. All right. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks Pamela. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com books, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Inside the New York Times Book Review is produced by Pedro Rosado from Headstepper Media. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela
5: Paul.